It's time for Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott, inviting the atheist, agnostic, and skeptic to examine for themselves the evidence for the Christian faith. We are all limited by what we do not know and by the things we think we know but are not true. Dr. Joe Mott earned his Ph.D. at LSU and was a distinguished math professor at Florida State University for 38 years, helping to write three math textbooks and authoring over 30 research articles in math. He is now the host of this radio program, Defending and Commending the Faith. Here is Joe Mott. Hello, friends. I hope you're ready for another chapter of analyzing Richard Dawkins' central argument found in his book, the God delusion. Arguments for the existence of God is commonplace. An argument against God's existence is rarer than hen's teeth. Just such an argument occurs in chapter four of Dawkins' book. It is an argument to which he attaches utmost importance. Buses in the city of Dawkins' residence have his conclusion emblazoned on their sides. Almost everyone is aware that he is against the God hypothesis. But not everybody agrees. Stephen Meyer, philosopher of science and the author of several books, including Signature of the Cell and Return of the God Hypothesis, says, These two theories, Big Bang and General Relativity Theory, point to a definite beginning of the universe. The fact that most scientists now believe that energy, matter, space, and time had a beginning is profoundly anti-materialistic. You can invoke neither time, nor space, nor matter, nor energy, nor the laws of nature to explain the origin of the universe. General relativity points to the need for a cause that transcends these domains. And theism affirms the existence of such an entity, namely God. In short, naturalism is on hard times in cosmology. The deeper you get into it, the harder it is to get rid of the God hypothesis. Now let's move on to the six statements on pages 157 and 158 that Dawkins makes in his book as he continues trying to disprove God. It is natural to assume Dawkins' six statements are premises in his argument, but I've shown earlier that these six statements fail to qualify as premises. In his article, Dawkins' Delusion, In the book's True Reason and Contending with Christianity's Critics, William Lane Craig says a more charitable interpretation would be to take the six statements not as premises, but as summary statements of six steps of Dawkins' cumulative argument for his conclusion that God does not exist. But even on this more general construal, The conclusion, therefore God almost certainly does not exist, simply doesn't follow from these six steps, even if we concede that each of them are true and justified. Okay, 
I grant that the six statements are not premises, but summary steps of his argument. But generally, to analyze someone's argument, we must attempt to identify, if possible, the premises and the conclusion. Typically, the conclusion is preceded by the word therefore or some other equivalent term. Premises often have the word because or since in them. However, in chapter 4 of his book, where his central argument appears, Dawkins only uses the word premise twice. In one case, it is about the theist premise, and the other is the premise of religion, the God hypothesis. So Dawkins does not himself identify any statement anywhere in chapter 4 as a premise of his own argument. If some of the six summary statements are false, it is of no use to isolate Dawkins' premises because they lead to false conclusions and therefore not worthy of consideration. Why would I say that? Dawkins' conclusion is clearly stated here. God almost certainly does not exist. To disagree with a conclusion of any argument, we must show that at least one of three logical mistakes occur. Either an ambiguous term, a false premise, or a logical fallacy occurs in the argument. I did not attempt to determine if any term was used ambiguously, but I do show some of his six statements are false and also that he invokes some fallacies. Let's take a moment to examine some of the flaws. Statement three is a real problem. I have shown that the three possible evidences that Dawkins offers all fail. First, he asks the silly logic question, who designed the designer? I'm going to look at William Lane Craig's comments concerning that. Second, he claims the universe is a better fit with a naturalistic universe over that of a theistic universe. And third, he claims that God is complex. Craig demonstrates Dawkins' silly logic question is flawed on at least two counts. First, Craig says that in order to recognize an explanation as the best explanation, one needn't have an explanation for the explanation. This is an elementary point concerning inference to the best explanation as practice in the philosophy of science. Thus, statement three is false. Second, Craig says Dawkins' objection raises all sorts of questions about the role played by assessing competing explanations. For example, how simplicity is to be weighted in comparison with other criteria like explanatory power, explanatory scope, plausibility, and so forth. If a less simple hypothesis exceeds its rivals in explanatory scope and power, for example, then it may well be the preferred explanation despite the sacrifice in simplicity. 
Let me add one more nail to the coffin of Dawkins' central argument. A serious problem involves Dawkins' statement five. That's where he relies on the speculative multiverse hypothesis. Not only is there not a scrap of scientific evidence for the multiverse hypothesis, it is, as Paul Davies puts it, an attempt to dodge the designer conclusion by claiming this fine-tuning of the universe exists only by accident. That is why Dawkins uses the word luck. It is quite astonishingly ironic and stupefyingly surprising to see the self-appointed leader of science, the high priest of the religion of atheism, the charismatic advocate of healthy-mindedness, and one of the so-called intellectual brights, having to stoop so low on the scale of rationality as to cite luck in his purported argument for atheism. On pages 146 to 147, Dawkins writes, the key difference between the genuinely extravagant God hypothesis and the apparently extravagant multiverse hypothesis is one of statistical improbability. Really? What does that mean in light of Dawkins' next sentence? He says there, The multiverse, for all that is extravagant, is simple. Because each of its constituent universes is simple in its fundamental laws. If this is the case, then it's true for our universe as well. And if our universe is simple in its fundamental laws, how can Dawkins assert that God must be very complex? Dawkins attempts to make conclusions about God on the basis of an analogy between God and humans and computers. Dawkins observes that for humans and computers, the more the product is complex demands that the producer be even more complex. But God is not analogous to humans or computers. They have bodies and parts, but God has neither. So you can't make a valid analogy between them. Thus Dawkins has employed the fallacy of false analogy. Therefore Dawkins' conclusion about the complexity of God fails. One final comment. Dawkins and others agree that the universe appears to be designed. But Dawkins says it is not actually designed. But the logic of his argument is never spelled out. The only reason for his conclusion is the silly question, who designed the designer? And that falls far short of having any devastating effect. William Dembski gives a criteria for design in the book The Design Inference, published in 1998. Dawkins could have attempted to give a criteria that distinguishes design from pseudo-design, but he didn't. So we are left in the dark. But the old maxim may apply here. 
If something looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it probably is a duck. And because you have said it isn't a duck, doesn't make it true. If, in fact, there is a designer of the universe, as I soon will show, then I can use that there are no actual infinities to find a first designer in the supposed infinite regress of designers of the universe, as I did in Kalam's argument to find a first cause. Then this first designer has no designer. Craig continues, <clears throat> Other steps in Dawkins' argument are also problematical, but I think enough has been said to show that his argument does nothing to undermine a design inference based on the universe's complexity, not to speak of it serving as a justification of atheism. The deepest cut is where Craig says in the final paragraph of his article, Dawkins' Delusion, quote, Several years ago, my atheist colleague, Quentin Smith, unceremoniously crowned Stephen Hawkins' argument against God in a brief history of time as the worst atheistic argument in the history of Western thought. With the advent of the God delusion, the time has come to relieve this weighty crown and to recognize Richard Dawkins' accession to the throne. End quotes. I, like Dawkins, can safely say some things just as he does. I can safely say that Dawkins' central argument is a failure. And neither has he rebutted the modern version of the design argument invoking fine-tuning of the physical constants. In fact, this amounts to strike three against his Boeing 747 gambit. I hope you are enjoying learning about Dr. Dawkins, because I am surely enjoying sharing all the fallacies and mistakes in his arguments. I say to the Christians in my audience these words of Steve Green's song. Oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. May the fire of our devotion light their way. May the footprints that we leave lead them to believe. And the lives we live inspire them to obey. Oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. Thank you for listening to Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott, a production of Wave 94 Radio in Tallahassee, Florida. If you have any questions or comments for Joe, please forward them to Doug Apple at Wave 94 at this email address, dougapple at wave94.com. And be sure to join us every Monday evening at 6.45 p.m. on Wave 94 and subscribe through your favorite podcast app, Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott.